Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast, where we share practical therapy tips and ideas for busy speech-language pathologists. Grab your favorite beverage and sit back as we dive into this week's episode. Hi there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast. I am so excited that Michaela and Corey are back again for another episode. We really wanted to be able to dive into phonological awareness um, and get super specific and tactical with you guys and break down exactly what we can do to help our students with um, literacy deficits. And these ladies are going to break it down and help it make so much more sense. Um, And if you think you've heard from Corey and Michaela before, you have. Um, They were here on last episode, episode 27. So if you want to get the introduction to all things literacy, um, you might want to head to episode 27 to... Um, hear more about their story and how they got to this point, um, and then also all of the basics to get you a really nice foundation when it comes to literacy. Um, And then just a quick recap in case you're just wanting to dive into phonological awareness. Um, So Corey and Michaela are from Ascend Smarter Intervention, um, and it's a Denver-based educational consulting practice and they are dedicated to getting SLPs the support they need to feel confident in structured literacy intervention. Um, And if you want to hear more about their backgrounds, definitely check out the show notes or head to the last episode. Um, But let's just dive right into all things phonological awareness. Yes, this is one of my favorite topics, so I'm excited to jump right in. Yes. Okay, so before we dive into all of those practical tips, um, I'm curious what we d- talked about this a little bit last week, um, but maybe let's first just start with a quick recap of the triangle that you told us about, because I think that's a really helpful framework and a good reminder before we get super specific here. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of literacy development, so thinking about reading and writing skills development, we know that there are three core parts to the brain that really need to come together to create efficiency and effective um, knowledge of reading and writing. And so those three core components in the brain start with the foundation, which is phonology or phonological awareness. So understanding that sound structure of the English language and how that comes together to create words. And then the second piece, that next building block, is orthography. So orthography is where we begin to tie visuals, so like the visual picture of a letter onto the sound that it makes. So actually recognizing an A as an A and recognizing a B as a B would be that orthographic component. Um, Also recognizing that that moves beyond just letters, but recognizing a word as a whole, um, as a word, and just seeing a picture of those letters coming together is the next piece. And then the third piece to that triangle, the top of the triangle, is semantics. So semantics is really your comprehension of the word or the sentence or the passage that you're reading. And so when we think about those three neural processes coming together, we really like to look at that as a triangle and we call it the literacy processing triangle. And we have to recognize that all three of those components have to come together at less than half of a second to have fluency that we need in order to create comprehension. 
And so what we talked about last week was the critical role that, you know, speech language pathologists play in this, recognizing that you are so familiar with the phonology aspect or the sound structure of our language And you're also so knowledgeable in semantics. And so really thinking about SLP's role here, it's so important in literacy. And so we're so excited to really dive in deep to that, um, you know, phonological awareness or that phonology section of the triangle, because it's so critical in the whole of literacy development. Thank you so much for that breakdown, Corey. Um, And then now I'm curious, what is the SLP's role when it comes to phonological awareness? Yeah, so I think this is really interesting because I think what we have to keep in mind, in addition to the three-part framework where we've got that literacy processing triangle, the other thing that we have to recognize in terms of research around reading development is that there's what's known as... um, kind of like the big five in reading. And the big five is, you know, phonological awareness, phonics, reading fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. So when we start to think about reading skills development, and we start to think about where speech language pathologists fit into that big five, those five core components, we recognize that speech language pathologists can really help support development in phonological awareness in that vocabulary development, in that comprehension development. So definitely when we think about those big five, you know, potentially leaving out the phonics and reading fluency piece, because that's potentially someone else's space. That's, you know, special education, general education, classroom teacher, that's going to be on them. And so again, when we're kind of thinking about that triangle and then those five pillars, we start to look at where can SLPs help to support um, those abilities that may be falling flat. And so one of the things that we like to think about here is, one, we all want to help these kids. We know that we went into this field because we want to make a massive difference. And so we need to start thinking about um, whose role is it? Is it a speech language pathologist role or is it you know, a special educator or a teacher's role? And one of the things that we have to recognize is that an SLP's role could simply be in training or providing support to the special education team or to the classroom teacher. When we think about phonology as a whole, we know that phonological awareness is a piece of that. The other thing that we would think about is, um, you know, articulation. There's a lot of pieces that fall into this. But when we develop phonological awareness, we are thinking about words without without letters, right? We're just thinking about the sounds and how our language breaks down. And so oftentimes SLPs have the best training in phonological awareness, in understanding how language breaks down and how to correct those breakdowns. A lot of times phonological awareness has gotten a lot of um, good press (laughs) recently. And so there's a, a lot of teachers who are trying to incorporate this into the classroom. But what we see is we see that they're trying to train some, you know, basic skills like Um, how to rhyme and how to break words into syllables and how to do all of these different things, but they don't necessarily know how it pulls in. And when they start to recognize, uh uh-oh, you know, Billy can't rhyme or uh uh-oh, Billy can't tell the difference between, you know, the B and the V sound, um, a B and a V, for example, or a TH and an F, for example, we start to run into problems because teachers and special educators can recognize this breakdown, but we don't necessarily have the training um, 
necessarily to understand how to correct some of those breakdowns. I think, you know, big picture and SLP's role could be one, training on the importance of phonological awareness, and then two, helping support when we start to see actual breakdowns. And that's so critical because we know that this phonological awareness skill set is a foundational building block in order for a student to be able to read and to be able to spell. So it's definitely a critical place that we need these students to be honing in on these skills and developing these skills. So SLPs offer a really unique skill set in order to support that. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And thank you for breaking that down for us. Um, and I we've touched on this a little bit, um, but we are like, we're spread super thin. We talked about this last week and there are so many different skills that we want to tar- target. So why is it particularly important to spend time focusing on phonological awareness? Like you mentioned that it's like a huge part of literacy and it's part of that triangle um, under the phonology element, but any other important elements that we would want to address or know about in terms of why it matters? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great question because even like I mentioned earlier, because there's been a lot of talk, because phonological awareness and phonology are being recognized in all of the research as being critical components of that literacy processing triangle and of the big five that the National Reading Panel put together in, um, I think, the year of 2000 when they put this huge meta-analysis of research together, that was great. And so that started to get incorporated. But what happened was there wasn't necessarily a connection of, of why it mattered or what it was helping to support. And so we know that it's a foundational building block because if students cannot begin to isolate kind of the individual sounds that you're getting in your words and start to be able to blend those sounds together or pull those sounds apart, we can't sound out words. So for so long, we've been telling students, we'll sound it out, sound it out. That's all well and good, but they didn't have the skills necessary to be able to sound it out um, for reading or spelling because we weren't necessarily connecting why are we teaching how many syllables are in this word? Why are we teaching how many sounds are in this word? And so it's important that we're spending time focusing on that because we're asking students again and again and again, sound it out, sound it out, sound it out. Well, we have to help them understand if you understand the sounds of our language and you understand how they blend together to create words and you understand how they pull apart to spell words, then we can start to ask them to sound things out without getting blank stares. Because so often we're um, getting you know, people, parents, um, and sometimes even educators asking students to sound out words like night. Well, you're trying to sound out words like night um, and you've got a problem because what you have to recognize is that we only have three sounds. Mm. I, and that I sound is actually comprised of the orthographic pattern IGH. So IGH saying I in that. Um, And so we have to start teaching students the, the background and the basis before we can start pairing those letter groups and pairing those orthographic patterns on. And ultimately that's going to impact comprehension as well, because sometimes we're getting breakdowns you know, in different words in the way that we say it. So we talked about uh, a potential phonology breakdown of not understanding the difference between TH and F. Well, if we don't if we don't hear or we don't perceive the difference or we can't produce the difference between TH and F, all of a sudden we can't pair 
an orthographic pattern appropriately, and the difference between the word thin um, with a TH and thin with an F uh, has a different semantic category. It has a different meaning. And so all of a sudden, what we recognize is if we don't have that kind of core foundation, we are breaking down in that orthographic side, which is also that phonics kind of pairing, as well as that semantics piece or that comprehension piece. So I think that's why it's so important to spend time there because it's really kind of the bottom, the bottom layer of this Jenga tower that we're thinking about. It has to be in place for these students. Yeah, I love that breakdown. And this reminds me a little bit of the conversation that we had last time, like taking, because like the example that you gave with Knight, like all SLPs know that that is three sounds. And we like, we know a lot of these things that we take for granted. Like we think, oh, if I know that, Everyone must know that, especially the person, um, like the special education teacher. Um, But sometimes it's not common knowledge, especially in the general education classroom. So we do bring that really unique skill set. And I think these types of conversations are particularly helpful in helping us identify our own superpowers and the areas that we are very knowledgeable about. Um, So Thank you for that breakdown and thank you for that reminder too, because I think that's so incredibly important. Um, I, just kind of a side note, we were talking about this before we went live, but um, we don't always feel like we have the knowledge or anything to contribute when it comes to literacy. But I hope that after Michaela and Corey have broken this down for us, that you realize that you have so many skills as an SLP that make you an integral part of this team when it comes to helping students with literacy deficits. So if you don't have any other takeaways, I hope you walk away with that one because that's such an important component. Um, And I don't know if either of you have anything that you wanted to add to that. I think that's so true. I just agree with that so much because I think the other thing that you you may not recognize at this point is that you are a missing link to a lot of this. And I think not recognizing that the background and the training of other people is just so very different. And I think a lot of times we think that other people have more in-depth knowledge of some of these things than they actually do. And so again, coming from this background and this training, we were sort of told like, you need to hit on all of these things, but we weren't necessarily told why or how that contributed to the bigger whole. And so I think it's so important that, you know, as an SLP, also just being able to make that connection for students, like, hey, the work that we're doing in here, this is why we're doing it. And this is how it impacts. And also recognizing that sometimes you're having to fight for um, services a little bit for a student. You may have a student on caseload that, you know, the school saying, well, we're going to have to discharge them from services because there's no educational impact. Well, hopefully this conversation can help you to see when we do have these breakdowns, there is an educational impact for sure. Yeah, I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head because so often when we're working with SLPs, will hear, well, literacy is not my space. And it absolutely is, and it absolutely can be. And like Corey mentioned in the last episode, when a student has, or we see students that have language disorders, there is a high risk of them having a literacy-based disorder as well. So being able to take your amazing superpowers, as you put it, and generalize those into the literacy space is going to do an amazing service for these students. 
And it's not meant to step on special educators' toes. It's not meant to do that. It's meant to supplement, to augment, to really help support what it is that they're doing. And sometimes I think it's just about the communication of, hey, here's what I have and here's what I can offer. And tell me a little bit more about what it looks like in your session. And I think just opening that up so that they don't feel like, oh, this is my space for it's this tug of war of like, whose space is it? Well, really, it's all of our space. Let's just sit down and have a conversation about what I'm doing in my sessions and what you're doing in yours so that we can see, um, you know, where there's some give and take, because I get it as an SLP, you have a crazy caseload, and you may have a number of different things that you're working on. So if there's anything you can hand off, great, let's just do some training so we can hand some of these things off, but make sure that they understand the why behind all of it. That team-based approach is definitely going to serve the students' worlds better than having different segmented pieces. So the communication piece there is going to be huge. Yes. Yeah. Having that team approach is definitely huge. And um, I love all of the tips and strategies that you're sharing to um, totally make that possible. And then also, because Michaela said that some SLPs are saying that literacy isn't their space. Um, and hopefully you've gotten enough information from here um, to realize that it is your space. You are helping with those building blocks. Um, and then there's also um, information from Ashish saying that literacy is also in our space. So it's definitely in our scope of practice. Um, it's not just some random new thing that's coming up. It's something that we definitely have the foundational skills for and Asha um, supports that as part of our scope of practice as well. Um, so we got a little bit into a little bit of a different discussion. Um, and so we'll bring it back to phonological awareness, but I do think that was super important just to um, bring home again. Um, but can you help us break down the hierarchy of phonological awareness skills? Like what, what are we looking at here? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to let Michaela speak a little bit to this, but I think it is important to recognize that there is a very clear hierarchy of the way that these skills can come together, but also keeping in mind that you may have, um, we, this is kind of like a Jenga tower too. We like to use our analogies and things. And so phonological awareness skills, even on their own, can be a little bit of a Jenga tower. And so really it is kind of figuring out where you may have holes and gaps, but I'll let Michaela speak a little bit to um, that hierarchy of, of skills. Absolutely. There is an absolute hierarchy to these. Um, but I do want to note as well that sometimes students will have gaps that we'll talk about a little bit later, where even though we are teaching in a hierarchy and we're looking at it, sometimes a student will have a gap that falls further down on the hierarchy, but they're able to do more advanced skills. But we'll get into that later. I'm getting ahead of myself there. But in terms of the hierarchy, when we're looking at segmenting, for example, we will have a student first learn how to segment sentences before they move into syllables and sounds. So if the sentence is the cat sat under the window, they're going to know that there's six words in that sentence before they're able to say, okay, the word under is two syllables, window is two syllables. And then even further, that um, window has the sounds w, i, n, d, o. There's five sounds. And the same goes for blending. So being able to put words into a sentence, put syllables together. For example, if I gave the students the syllable, can, did, what word is that? The word is candid. That's going to be a 
easier scope for them, an easier scope for them to accomplish before we then give them sounds and have them put together the sounds in a word. For example, er is the word slipper. That's going to be more advanced than putting together the syllables. So there absolutely is a hierarchy that we'll work through when we're teaching phonological awareness skills. And we'll look at all of that when we're testing phonological awareness skills as well. And we have a resource that we use in terms of when we are getting a baseline assessment or when we are progress monitoring and really the way in which we're pulling those skills together. So one of the first things, and these are things that you guys are looking at too oftentimes in your assessments and in things like that. But um, for example, one of the first things we would want to look at is sentence repetition. Can they just repeat a sentence back to you. That's going to be the first level of blending. And then after that, we would look at sentence segmenting. So if you give them a sentence, can they tell you each of those words? So that's kind of like step one. Um, and then the next step would be looking at rhyming skills. So the first one that we would want to look at would be, can a student um, identify when two words rhyme? So if you give them two words, can they say, yes, those two words rhyme? Or no, those two words do not rhyme. Um, again, this is when we're starting to very basically play with sounds of words and recognizing those sounds of words. Can we can we hear it? Um, after that rhyme discrimination, we want to look at rhyme production. Can they produce a rhyme for me? So if I give them a word, can they can they produce a word that rhymes with that? So moving kind of from that sentence level onto kind of that rhyming or kind of whole word level. Then we would start to look at sound isolation. So can they isolate the first sound in a word? Can they tell you what's the first sound in bat? What's the first sound in thin? You know, we can start to do that. And then we would look at um, final sound. So can we start to isolate the final sound in a word? After that final sound isolation, then we might start looking at medial sound in a word um, before we start breaking down to, to more of that isolation. But just being able to tell, like, what's the first sound? What's the last sound? What are the sounds that you're hearing? And then from there, we'll kind of jump into what Michaela was talking about even more. We want to start looking at blending and segmenting at both the syllable and the sound level. So, again, we do have like kind of a step by step hierarchy based on um, kind of norms of like when students should be developing each of these skills, but um, we can definitely attach a little chart for you guys for that hierarchy because there definitely, definitely is one. That's super helpful. And then do you have any norms in terms of what we should expect based on a certain age? Like, do we expect the students to have these skills like a certain level in kindergarten, first grade, or do you have any broad expectations just to put like a typical yeah. developing age on it? Absolutely. So big picture, if you're working with students uh, fourth grade and up, they should be able to do all of these skills. They should be able to manipulate. They should be able to substitute sounds and words. They should be able to really understand the sound structure um, and be pretty fluent with that. Sometimes it still takes a little bit of work. I know when I was working at Children's Hospital, I worked under a neuropsychologist who would always like to give me little like... Um, quizzes. I felt like he was like constantly assessing my IQ for me. Um, but he, he would always give like little like 
you know, say, you know, this word backward or say, you know, say this word, you know, what's sale backward? And so I'm kind of having to think like, okay, a, a, lace. Um, but you would expect by fourth grade that, that students generally can have all of those skills. It might take a little bit of time. What I'm saying here is you might not have like huge automaticity, but definitely you should have those skills in place. Now, when we start working backward, if you're working with students who are in, you know, kinder through third, or even kind of that pre-K through third, yes, there's definitely developmental norms that we would expect for each of those areas. So typically, when we're looking at, you know, pre-K, kindergarten, we want students to have um, at least about 80 to 90 percent accuracy in their ability to um, recall sentences for you. So I know with a lot of our speech language students, they really struggle with um, repeating back sentences, but they should be able to repeat back, um, you know, four to five word sentences to you with accuracy. They should also have um, accuracy with rhyming. So being able to detect rhyme, being able to produce rhyme and they may start to be able to move into that phoneme isolation space. Um, so that's kind of kind of that beginning spot there. Once you get into first and second grade, you would expect that those skills that they should have already had mastered are clearly fully mastered. And at that point, we start to expect that they can manipulate well um, at the syllable level. So if we're asking them to blend syllables together, if we're asking them to um, segment syllables into each of their individuals, they should be able to do that um, with at least 90% accuracy at that age. Um, by the time, and I, again, I kind of grouped first and second grade together, but also looking at second grade um, into to third, fourth grade, that's when we should start to be able to also isolate um, and blend segment individual phonemes, individual sounds into their own pieces. So we're starting to get more and more kind of granular as we're going, and we expect them to have um, really kind of that 90%, sometimes I say 80, but really 90% is going to be showing mastery on something. I know as somebody who loves data, sometimes I only have time for five trials. And so that's why I'll say 80% accuracy sometimes, but I just want to um, throw that out there. But that they should be showing you mastery of all the way into those sound level skills. And then by the time we're in, in fourth grade and above, um, again, we should be able to manipulate and we should be in all those higher level skills. So in this chart that we're going to give you, it, it breaks that down um, for you and kind of what your expectation and what your norm is for each of those so that you just have that and you can use it. And you're not trying to like piece this together as I'm like talking about it. <laughs> that is so helpful. I I'm really excited that we have like some more specific guidelines to go with because we often don't get that. So I so appreciate that. That was amazing. And I cannot wait to um, get that chart into people's hands. Um, that is amazing. So anything else that you wanted to touch on when it comes to the hierarchy of these skills? think so. And I think part of the reason is because we know that these skills um, really do come in a hierarchy. And so obviously we don't want to be, um, if we're working with, you know, kindergarten students, we don't want to be doing complex, you know, phonological manipulation skills, expecting that they have these skills in place. But like Michaela mentioned, um, I think a lot of times it's going to be important that we take a really holistic view 
of the fact that all of these skills are necessary to be able to read, write, um, and just manipulate just spoken language as a whole, um, we, we're going to need all of them. And so sometimes in terms of how we're, how we're working through these things, it doesn't necessarily, you know, it doesn't necessarily look like that. It doesn't look like, okay, first we're going to hit this and then we're going to hit this. So we'll talk about that. But um, that's why I say like, no, in terms of the hierarchy, yes, there definitely is one, but we don't have to um, hold ourselves with the, like, it must be this way. I must teach it this way. Okay. Awesome. That helps. Um, So now let's get into some therapy. Um, So what would this look like in terms of our sessions um, and what we're working on with students? Yeah, I'll let Michaela throw some ideas out for you. So I think at the easiest level, it would definitely just be when you're with a student and you have a word that you're working on, pulling in some of those questions and those tasks like, hey, how many syllables are in this word or how many sounds are in this word? to start getting them, uh, segmenting that and being able to break them down. Or you can also flip that and say, I'm going to give you sounds. And in the last episode, Corey had said, you can give the student mm, eh, k. What word is that if they're working on that k sound? So definitely being able to do that. A fun way you can do it, this is getting a little bit more into executive functioning and working memory. I like to play a game sometimes with my students where I see how many words I'm sorry, how many sounds they can hold on to and repeat back to me. And it doesn't have to make a word. You can just give them a, p, k, qu, w. Can you repeat them back? Kind of like the sentences that Corey mentioned earlier and repeating them back. It would be done the same way, but with sounds. So those are great ways to pull them into your sessions. Another big thing that we want to make sure we're doing, however, is helping them understand why we're doing this. Because if you're just asking them to break words into syllables, and you're not explaining why, or you're not explaining why it's important to know how to rhyme and why it's important to know that an F and a TH make different sounds, it's not going to land for your students. And it's going to be really difficult for them to take these skills, buy into wanting to improve these skills, and then apply and generalize them as well. Yeah, and I think that's so, so critical. And I think that's the missing component that I think can be really critical um, as an SLP working with these students. Because again, um, like I mentioned before, like phonological awareness has gotten some some good press recently in terms of how important it is. And so when I went to observe my own kiddos in their classes, what I saw was that teachers were doing a nice job of like, what's the word that rhymes with this? Or um, doing a nice job of how many syllables in this word? But I think what's going to be critical is starting to pair that to if I'm asking you to count how many words are in a syllable, the reason that I'm doing that is because that's how we spell words. So, for example, if we were targeting that sound in therapy again and we wanted to do the word cupcake, okay, let's take that word cupcake. How many syllables in cupcake? Two all right, let's go ahead and just take a little whiteboard or take um, a piece of paper and let's make two scoops. So we call this our scoop spelling. So I'm gonna make two scoops for cup, cake. And then what we can do is, okay, let's take the first syllable, cup. How many sounds do you hear in cup? And have them just draw a little line. I hear k, uh, p in cup. What you can do then at that point is, what's the sound we were working on today? Can they find it? Can they isolate? Where was that initial k 
sound. And it can be like, oh, it's the first sound. You're right. That first sound in the word cupcake that we were just talking about is at the beginning of the word. Great. Now let's move on to the second syllable. What's the second syllable? Cake. Okay, great. Let's go ahead and how many sounds do we hear in cake? K, A, K. Okay, perfect. We're going to go ahead and make three lines um, for cake. Where do you hear the sounds? Oh, that first sound and that last sound were also that sound that we were targeting. Um, and so what that can start to do is, again, then we have to start to get into like, okay, well, why, why do we spell it with an E at the end? Which is really not necessarily, unless you're diving into literacy as a whole thing, you don't necessarily have to worry about why. You can just say, oh, and there's a silent, there's an E at the end that doesn't say anything. How crazy is that? And that's that's plenty, but the good thing is, is that it's continuing to solidify what were you working on? What were you working on? What sounds were you targeting while also pulling that phonological awareness right into it so that they start to see this is how we spell. That's why we care about it because this is how we spell. Or when Michaela gave the example of like, why does it matter how many sounds I can hold on to? Well, because when we're trying to sound out a word, we have to hold on to each one of those individual sounds, each one of those individual phonemes long enough to blend the whole segment together. And so oftentimes what we do, and the reason that we need to teach students um, to blend you know, sounds together and then to blend syllables together is because when we've got multisyllabic words that we're trying to help support them with, we have to take the first syllable and we have to look at each individual letter or think about each individual sound. And for example, if they were trying to read the word cupcake, they would have to hold on to the k, uh, Okay, what word did you just say or what syllable did you just say? Cup. Okay, let's move on to the second one. K. A. K. Okay, you just blended that together. What's, what syllable did you just make? Cake. Okay, you told me cup, cake. What's the entire word? Cupcake. And so what we have to do is we have to make it clear when we are focusing on these phonological awareness skills, we are not doing it because it's just fun. We are not just doing it because we should do it. And somebody told us that it was, you know, one of the five core components of reading. We are doing it because it explicitly and directly correlates to reading and spelling. So I think, you know, in terms of what that looks like, it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be something that you have task cards for. I love some task cards. I absolutely love it. And I think also if ever you have mixed groups and you realize you've got a student who has phonological awareness struggles, you can definitely use those task cards that have the word that then breaks it down to like how many syllables are in this word. But I think you don't even have to do that. You can just use whatever it is that you're targeting, whatever words, whatever patterns you're doing, and just tie it in just like that. Like I'm going to pull one word out of this and let's do this fun little activity with it. Yeah. And I love that scoop spelling example. Um, would you, cause I've read some studies where they just use like blocks and other manipulatives instead of actually going into the orthography components. Is that something that you ever do or have you read anything yeah, about that? For sure. We do that a lot. And a lot of times if you're not trying to target orthography at all, like if that's not, you don't, you don't need to. And in fact, um, most of the time, yeah, we use, hold on, Michaela, she's got all kinds of fun things. But yeah, we definitely use um, manipulatives instead. The one thing that we do want to do is, at the very least, have the instructor then go then pair that orthography to it at the end. Like, great, we're just focusing on sounds, but I just want to show you that connection, because that's what's missing, um, is that connection between 
okay, great, but why? Um, and that's even something that perhaps you just shoot over to your special education team um, or the classroom teacher is, here's this great strategy. This is how we focus on the sound level, the phonology level. Now they need to go tie the orthography in, but somebody has to connect that because what happens is nobody else is, and they expect students to pick up on that implicitly. Um, and our struggling students really struggle with implicit learning. So we can't just expect like, we taught phonological awareness and we taught all the letters. So now it all makes sense. It doesn't make sense unless we show them. But yeah, Michaela, you can kind of jump into uh, manipulating. Yeah, so I can explain a little bit about how we go from our phonological awareness task using those manipulatives to connecting it to written letters, to words, to sentences. So whenever we get to the part of our lesson where we are going to do phonological awareness, we will use manipulatives. And I have, like Corey said, used a number of different things from unifix cubes to just these little tiny counter chips. If you're going to get those, I recommend getting the magnetic ones because when a student knocks a hundred counter chips over onto the floor, they are a nightmare to pick up. But I've used all of those and I just use different colored items so that students have something to move around and have a visual to tie those sounds to. So if they are trying to use counter chips to spell out the or to represent the sounds in the word milk again they'd have a different chip for m, e, o, k. and then from there you can have them change different sounds within the word by replacing the different chips and move through your phonological awareness activity after we do that we will move into our auditory drill where we then give them a single sound and they need to come up with all of the different ways to produce that sound so if it's I, I know earlier Corey brought up the word night, I-G-H is going to make that I sound, but so will the letter I by itself. So knowing all of the different ways to produce that sound, or if it's the sound A, knowing A can say A, A-I, A-Y, E-A, there's a whole host of different things that will make that sound. And then we'll go into spelling and do the scoop spelling thing that Corey mentioned earlier, and we can say, if you want to get even deeper into it, okay, if we're spelling cake with that A sound, that's when we'll get into more of those literacy-based rules to know which sound to use. I won't go totally down that rabbit hole. We can save that for another podcast. But we do try to very explicitly connect for a student how we're moving from using those little counter chips to putting that into words and putting those words into sentences. Because oftentimes, like Corey said, they don't just implicitly pick up on that. And as an instructor, that took me a while to recognize. And students asked one day, they're like, I don't understand why we do this every week. And it was at that point I realized that I needed to actually very explicitly explain to them, we do the phonological awareness and our auditory drill activities, because when you are spelling a word, that's the process your brain needs to go through to be able to register, okay, what letters do I need to put into this word? What order do they need to go in? and how that they can then produce a correctly spelled word. If you don't have manipulatives like that, and you want to still do an activity where a student has that visual, there were days where I forgot my manipulatives or I didn't have them, and I've used paper clips, or I've used crayons or highlighters, just something that the student can physically manipulate and have that colored visual has been helpful enough for them to be able to do that task. You don't need to go and buy fancy things as much as we love, again, the pretty unifix cubes and little counter chips and kids like them. They're not necessary as long as you have something you can use. And I think it's so important to just be thinking again about like 
in, you know, in your sessions, one, I think the most critical component is recognizing how this plays a, a bigger part. Um, and then two, recognizing like with the orthography component or with understanding all the different ways we could get the I sound or all the different ways we could get the E sound, all of those pieces, um, really what you can start to do is take a look at from your special education team or your classroom teacher, um, how are they teaching these things? You know, is, are there ways that you can just do that training of here's a great way to help your students with those literacy components specifically, um, you know, just in the general classroom. So this might be an opportunity where you start to teach the students a little bit how to do that just with words that you're using, at the very least, breaking words into um, syllables and sounds, and then blending syllables and sounds. So if I had to think about like the four key phonological awareness tasks, if I could not focus on any of the others, the four key ones that I would focus on would be syllable blending and segmenting and phoneme um blending and segmenting, because that's the literacy component. That's what we absolutely need. Now, clearly, if you're working on articulation, if you're working on other things, there might be other times where you need to do more complex manipulation. But at the very least, trying to incorporate that into your session and just using some of those strategies or those manipulatives or things to teach them how to do it. And then showing the classroom teacher, hey, if you're doing spelling word lists, hey, if you're working on some of these things, here are some strategies that you can use as more of a push-in model um, or more of kind of that training support model to help make sure that some of these things um, are actually happening more in the classroom. I would just say if you're working on some of these, you know, articulation pieces or things like that anyway, it's a great opportunity to bridge that gap and show them how it connects again to that um, literacy piece. Yeah. And that's, I love the idea of sharing the strategy with teachers because I'm sure they'll be grateful for ideas to help support their students, but it also helps bridge that gap because sometimes the skills that we target in our speech room, like they just stay in speech and they the students don't know that they can use that to help them with their spelling. So I definitely think that talking to them about the why and um, discussing it there with the student is really helpful. And that, but if you can share that with the teachers and have them use the same kind of language and examples around it, that's so incredibly powerful. Like I love that and strategy. We. Yeah, we've even started using that as home practice for our parents. So trying to teach parents these things, because a lot of times what happens is the things that you're teaching in therapy, it's hard because they don't generalize as quickly as they could because you don't have support in the classroom or you don't have support at home. And so we even started giving, you know, little spelling word lists and things. Um, so again, I know oftentimes in speech therapy, you're giving a word list of different sound patterns that you potentially want targeted. For example, that might just be one um, type of home practice activity that you would give. What you could do is you could also just give a little phonological awareness task as part of that. So if we have a bunch of different words that are targeting that k sound, have the student go through and mark. Um, we just make little grids, which again, happy to share with you, but little grids where they then need to, you know, mark each of the sounds that they hear in that word. So again, they're just taking what they're doing and they're doing it at a deeper level. They're having more opportunities to look at that a little bit differently and parents start to feel more empowered so that you don't get parents um, who are hoping to help, trying to help, um, but are actually harming things. Like, for example, for us, when we have parents who are telling their kids, sound out the word, sound out the word, and we're like, ah, but actually don't, don't, um, because that's not a strategy that's working. This is just a way to help 
bridge the gap between classroom and home as well. So just keeping that in mind too. Yeah, so helpful. Um, And I was curious too, because you mentioned about, you mentioned like syncing up with what the special education teacher was doing. And I'm curious, like, let's say um, that the special education teacher is using a structured literacy approach and they're working through like all of that orthography. What would be the best way, like, what would be the best way if we're doing some of those phonological activities? You mentioned like the top four and you gave some ideas that we could embed that, but are there, is there anything that we need to watch out for or anything that we could do to like have even more impact with what we're doing? Yeah. So I honestly think, I think there's a lot of value in doing this in one of two ways. So keeping in mind that there's not a right or a wrong way, I think there's two ways that you can do this and have it be really effective. So one of the things is if you do have a special education team who is working through a structured systematic scope and sequence, at the very least, just knowing what it is, just saying ahead of time, like, hey, do you have an order in which you're teaching these phonogram patterns or these orthographic patterns that they're going to need to be looking at? Hopefully they do. Hopefully they're using an approach like that. But if so, just kind of being um, connected on what that is so that if there's ever a time where you have overlap and you are focusing on a specific pattern or a specific target for the kiddo and it aligns or sort of overlaps with something that the um, special education teacher might be doing, that could be really great. You could even just ask the student like, hey, what did you learn about with Miss or Mr. So-and-so? Like, what was that pattern? Tell me a little bit about it and see if you can't pull in some words that would also target what you're doing. So if you're working on a language component and you have a vocabulary word um, that kind of aligns with that pattern, great. Um, or if you're working on articulation, for example, and you have a word that might align with that pattern, great. That's awesome. That's great. That's also a lot of work. I get that that's like, um, yeah, I don't have time for that. And I, no judgment here. I completely understand that. So if at all possible, that's awesome. Like if everybody can kind of get on the same page, that's great. If that's not possible, then I think the other, you know, opportunity that you have here that you have to recognize is that even if you're out of sync with the scope and sequence that the special education teacher is teaching, you are still helping to generalize these skills. I think too often using kind of that Orton-Gillingham approach, what happened is we got so stuck on kids can only read these words and they can only practice these words and they only focus on these words um, that they didn't see how it applied to any other context. And so I think it's important to even recognize that even if you have no communication with the special education team at all, which I don't recommend, but I know it's a reality sometimes, um, is just continuing to do it with the words that you are using, recognizing that some of the things might be beyond the scope or the pattern that the child knows, but that they'll start to see, hey, you may not have learned this yet, but I'm just exposing you to it. I'm giving you exposure so that at a time when that becomes more relevant, you're like, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. I remember that. And that offers significant value too. So I don't ever want people to think like, oh, if I'm not completely in sync with my special education teacher and doing kids a ton of harm, no, that's not necessarily the case at all. Just use your words, use your targets and see when and if you can kind of pull some of these things in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And thank you for breaking that down. Um, And then I'm also curious in terms of, like you gave us this hierarchy and um, like for some of the examples, like is it, because it sounds like students first learn to identify, like it's easier to isolate the first sound in a word and then it's 
second easiest to do the final sound and the middle sound or the medial sound is the hardest. Um, so if we're embedding this into our therapy, is it should we just focus on the first sound until they get that? Or is it okay to do like first and final, or should we do all three all together? Like any tips and suggestions in terms of that implementation, like going down the hierarchy? Yeah, I think it depends on the age of your students really and and who you're working with. So if you're working with a kindergarten group, um, we wouldn't necessarily be expecting them to be able to isolate each of the different sounds in words and being able to recognize that. And so in that case, you do want to kind of use that hierarchy as a benchmark for what do I need to be teaching? Like, what are the skills that they should have? We don't want to work on things that are developmentally inappropriate, clearly. Mm -hmm. But um, if you have students who, you know, are in that even second grade and up, by the time they're in second grade and up, they really should be able to... uh, you know, identify individual syllables, individual sounds and words. At that point, it's okay um, to start kind of requiring more from them. It's a little bit tricky because you don't want to overwhelm students. And so you kind of, it's a little bit student dependent on what that looks like. But for example, in our curriculum, one of the key pieces that we always work on is um, phoneme manipulation. So like changing sounds. So for example, Michaela gave the example of milk okay, what if we change the first sound in milk to s? Great, now we have silk. Um, And we can kind of do some of those things. So we always work on phoneme manipulation, even though it's the most complicated task that a student will have. What we can start to do, though, is then work backwards to fill in any of those other gaps. So I think what's important here is that, yes, you could foreseeably work on all of those things at once. Um, or if you've got you know, groups of students, you might have students working on different pieces. It's helpful for them to see how it all comes together. When we work too long on one isolated skill, they get kind of stuck and again, not seeing how this fits into the big picture. Um, and so it's good for them to have exposure to all of those different pieces to see this is just how we play with language. We're just gonna play with, play with words a little bit here. It's really important. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Um, Thank you for that. Um, And then let's see. So in terms of, like, I know this is variable, like there's so many variables here, um, but in terms of working through the phonological awareness hierarchy, like how, like, I know we have that, um, the development and we expect those skills to be in place around fourth grade. Um, but like, I'm curious, how long do you end up working on that? Like what ages do you work through? And like, if you start working, hopefully we're working with these students well below before fourth grade. Um, but I'm just curious in terms of like the timing and how long, we would expect to work on a skill? Like if we're working on that rhyming, like how long do you typically spend on that? Or if you have a range before a student masters that? Yeah. And that so depends. (laughs) Um, It really depends on the student. I think what I always keep in mind as a clinician um, and an educator is what is the end goal? So I don't want to teach rhyming just for the sake of rhyming. We understand that this is kind of a, you know, foundational piece. But the reason that we teach rhyming is to help make 
spelling hopefully a little bit more fluent for students or reading a little bit more fluent for students so that they can start to recognize some of those patterns. And so I think there's kind of two parts to answer your question. I think one, we don't want to spend more time than we need to if the outcome of phonological awareness is met. So the reason, again, that we're going to teach phonological awareness is because one, that's how we make sure that we're articulating properly, that we've got all of the individual sounds and the words have come out correctly. So if you've got a student who um, is struggling with that articulation or production piece, you need to work on these things as long as you need until you've got you know, adequate performance on the outcome measure. So phonological awareness in itself is not the outcome. The outcome is that we can produce sounds with intelligibility, or the outcome is that we can blend sounds together when we're reading um, to be able to read appropriately, or we can segment sounds appropriately so that we can spell correctly. So I think the first piece of that is I would never work on a goal if the end goal has already been attained. So if they're already articulating appropriately um, and they can blend patterns together long enough to read or spell, that's going to be the key piece. If you have a student who doesn't have these individual phonological awareness pieces in place and they continue to struggle with articulation, reading, or spelling, then it's one of those things that you sort of need to work on it as long as, long as it takes to get the desired outcome. For us, um, I know, Michaela, you might be able to speak a little bit to this too, but in terms of how long it takes, it's so student dependent and some of our students um, <laughs> continue to, to struggle with it longer than we would like to see. Um, but I would say typically students, once they've been exposed to it, can start to get the gist or the pattern of this within about... Um, you know, three to six months of kind of ongoing therapy and exposure to it more if you can get like or faster if you can get the teacher on board and even faster if you can get parents on board. But I would definitely not spend a, a ton, a ton of time um, focusing, you know, on each individual piece unless you can see how it's specifically impacting the outcome um, that it's hindering. Yeah, I would agree with that three to six month typically typical range. Um, again, very student dependent. And Corey, you can talk maybe more to this as well, but I'm typically seeing if it's taking a student a lot longer than that, it might be more of an issue or at least worth looking into the issue of a working memory or attention concern as well, especially if they've had that explicit instruction from me, from their teacher, from any other supports and the parents. Um, that's always a red flag for me that something else might be going on as well. But yeah, um, yes, definitely around that three to six months. And then we're also really careful when Corey said that we will absolutely hit on this as long as it takes to get students that end goal. If we have a student that's coming in, like you said before, hopefully we're seeing them before fourth grade. But if I have a seventh grader coming in, I'm going to be a little bit more careful about how I introduce some of these tasks especially ones like rhyming, because while they can still be important to get that desired outcome, we want to make sure that they, the students feel like they're being respected as well and that they're not doing baby work as often, or not ours often say, we are very careful, but as is often a concern. Yeah, so helpful. Um, and I think that, like, I really love how you focus in on the final outcome 
um, because no one's going to get a job because they can rhyme, but being able to read and spell will definitely impact that. So I think that is such a great reminder and like, because we're wanting to embed that and share that with our students as we're going through these tasks. And that's what we're all ultimately working towards. So that is an amazing reminder. Um, and then just one last question, because you've been talking about this structured literacy program, and I think you've kind of alluded to the answer through your different examples here, um, but does an SLP need to use a structured program or do they have to have a really um, like expanded set of materials to teach phonological awareness correctly? No, so, not at all. I'll let, I'll let Michaela talk about this, but like, I, yeah, this is crazy because I've heard this come up a lot. So it's, it's an interesting point. Yeah. So I would say no, if you are looking again to pull in the full literacy um, processing triangle and hit on everything, that's where we much more um, require a structured and systematic approach. But if you are trying to hit on phonological awareness as its own literacy sprinkle and pulling it into your sessions, it can be so much more off the cuff. It can be just a verbal response with the students. So asking them, okay, you're working on the word milk. Again, how many sounds are in there? Let's change mm to and just going off of that without any of those fancy materials or a complete structured program. I think what is important with considering, you know, a structured program, I think the benefit to that is that we're not leaving things out, right? So I definitely agree with Michaela. We do not need to use a structured program. We do not necessarily need to use structured materials. But what we do need to know is we do need to have some type of baseline or some type of assessment that helps us to recognize where those holes and those gaps are occurring. Because otherwise, what sometimes will happen is, you know, as we mentioned earlier, you'll have... Um, a student who's struggling either with, you know, articulation, who's struggling with reading, who's struggling with spelling. And we know that we have a phonological awareness breakdown, but we're not entirely sure where it is. That's where having a hierarchy and recognizing that there are distinct categories of phonological awareness are so important. And so when we're looking at assessment and we're thinking about, you know, for example, the comprehensive test of phonological processing is a really great measure. I absolutely love it. I think it gives a ton of very valuable data but what it doesn't do is it does not break those phonological awareness skills down for you very far. And so you need to recognize um, that you may need to do some assessment and take some data to figure out from, from that you know, hierarchy and that sort of systematic like building where are the holes and the gaps. So if we look at that Jenga tower of phonological awareness skills, where are those? And we can just fill them in. We don't need to build from the bottom up like we would need to do um, with a full structured literacy or Orton-Gillingham approach to literacy. Phonological awareness is a little bit different in that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's true for anything that we do. We want to have data to show why we're working on the skills that we're working on and use that to support. And then we also need that to make sure the students are making adequate progress and that what we're doing is working. So that makes a ton of a ton of sense, and you're speaking to my database clinician heart when you share that. 
Um, well, it's just <laughs> so important again to make sure that we keep in mind, like we've reiterated a few times here, phonological awareness is not your end goal. So we want to one, make sure that our phonological awareness scores are going up, that we're targeting the right places, but that ultimately that's moving the needle on whatever the end goal is, because um, we don't want to focus just on data for like this one point and be like, yahoo, we made a hundred percent. And like, but my articulation still awful or about my spelling is still awful. Then it's like, well, great. We targeted the underlying concept and it didn't help support the end goal. So we got to focus on both of those data points. Yes. I love it. Well, thank you, Corey and Michaela, so much for breaking this down for us. If you want to find any of the resources that we mentioned today, you can find them at slpnow.com slash 28. Um, and Thank you again. I so appreciate you sharing all of your time and expertise with us. Thanks for listening to the SLP Now podcast. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. So yes, you can earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your SLP friends. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episodes sent directly to you. See you next time.